Let me encourage you to open a Bible and turn to John, <clears throat> excuse me, John chapter 1. I wanted to uh, make one, <clears throat> excuse me, one other announcement uh, this morning before we get underway. <clears throat> uh, on the Sunday night, on the 18th, excuse me, that didn't work. Uh, on the 18th, uh, we're going to be having a praise service. Um, I, I love doing these, and um, I'm really excited about doing uh, our first one here. And uh, one of the things that, 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 that gathering together with family can make it hard for some people to be thankful. Um, I know others, that's the means of their thankfulness. Others, that's the, 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 the crutch that makes being thankful difficult. Um, but um, sometimes we get so focused in on, on our wants and our needs that we forget how wondrously blessed that we are. If we were to count the blessings of God, we would run out of time. And so what we're going to do is we're going to gather together, and it's just going to be a short 45-minute praise service where we are going to sing some praise songs together, and there's going to be an open mic, and we will share no prayer requests. Instead, everyone will have an opportunity, if you are led, to share something that you have to be thankful for. And it is so encouraging to sit around other brothers and sisters in Christ and see how God has been answering prayers this year and how God has been proving himself to be faithful this year and how God has been faithful over and over again. It is so encouraging and it always uplifts my heart. And so I hope that you'll plan on being there. It should be, I'm assuming, 630 on Sunday night, the 18th. And so I'm looking forward to that and be thinking and praying about if the Lord would have a uh, something for you to share, again, to glorify him and encourage the hearts of our brothers and sisters in Christ. But let's, uh, let's look at our text this morning. Now, I, I have aspirations of finishing chapter 2 in John before Christmas. And, and I think we can do it. <clears throat> I, I, you can do it. I don't know if I can do it, but... Um, we're, we're, we're going to be moving in together and, and really finishing last week's message. Uh, last week, we, we went through verse 29, and we got all the way through the verse. And so this week, we're going to look at the rest of that section, verses 30 through 34 together, but, but they're tied together, and I want to make sure that we see that right away. So let me, let me go over quickly what we discussed last week from verse 29. Follow with me. In John chapter 1, verse 29, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I love the fact that, as we discussed this last week, that John didn't point back to the sacrificial system. Lambs weren't used in the law of God to take away sins. They were not used as sin offerings. So John didn't point them back to the Levitical law. Instead, John pointed them to the Passover. You may remember that God, when Israel was in Egypt, and when God was bringing the final plague onto the Egyptians, God instituted this Passover celebration that Israel was to continue to do every year to remember the goodness of God, where they were to, to, 
kill a lamb for each, basically each family. And they were to take some of the blood and they were to put it on the doorposts. And when God saw the blood, he said that I will pass over you. In other words, I will not inflict my judgment upon you in light of the blood of the lamb. Now that lamb's blood, or those many lambs' blood, did not pardon sin, but it was a picture that God was laying out for people to look for the one coming lamb who would have the power to take away the sin of the world. And John points back to this Passover when God, by grace alone, through his power alone, saved his people and gave them freedom. And now this greater lamb has come. One that would not just give temporary fleeting freedom from enslavement, but a far greater lamb. A lamb who was pure and holy and timeless, worthy enough to purchase all who believe in him the forgiveness of their sins and eternal life. This is the lamb of God. And then we looked at, the, the, at how Paul further clarifies what he means by the phrase Lamb of God by saying, who takes away the sin of the world. And we discussed the fact that, that is John trying to say that either, I should say, John the Baptist or our author, the Apostle John, is John trying to communicate that Jesus is going to pay for all people's sins? And we discussed that that's not textually acceptable. First, when you consider the illustration, the Passover lamb did not help, <coughs> excuse me, did not help everyone. Otherwise, no one would have died in Egypt. It only helped those who were under its blood. And so the illustration itself is not a universal picture, but a specific one. And second, John clarifies, and we looked at this in detail throughout this book, that the death of Jesus is only for those who believe and not for all people. John 3.36 says, For whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Let me give you the, the, um, the unauthorized Pastor Paul translation of that verse. Whoever believes in the Son will be given life and passed over. But whoever rejects the Son will endure the wrath of God. So when John says that Jesus is the one, or the Lamb is the one who takes away the sin of the world, he is not saying that Jesus takes away every sin, or every one sin, but he is saying that Jesus is the only Savior of the world. And that all who believe in him will find forgiveness, whether you're Jew or whether you're a Gentile, whether you're a man or whether you're a woman, whether you're wise or whether you're foolish, whether you're educated or uneducated, whether you can read or can't read is irrelevant. For Jesus is the only Savior. And by saying that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John does stress that all people are under the curse of sin and thus in need of saving. And it is through Jesus alone that no matter who we are or where we grew up or what color our skin is or what language we speak, in Him we can find hope 
peace and grace, forgiveness and life. But if, if you're somewhat of a skeptic, it's worth asking, well, how does John know for sure? Like, like how can we have that, that kind of um, passion or, or, or trust that John knows for sure that Jesus is the Messiah, the Lamb of God? Because just in that phrase, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that means that there's only one, right? There's only one who can take away the sin of the world. How is John so confident that it's Jesus? And we should ask that question, each of us individually. How could the vast majority of Jewish rabbis, both then and now, be wrong? How could all Muslims or Buddhists or atheists all be wrong? How can I know for sure that Jesus really is God's means of saving me from my sin? How can I know with confidence that where I've placed my faith is worthy? This is one of those things that you, you don't want to guess about. You don't want to hope you're right about. This is one of those things that relate to our eternal destiny. And so the question we need to ask is, how can we know for sure? How did John know for sure? And that's where our text takes us this morning. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you and I praise you for being so good and so gracious and so kind. I thank you again for your wonderful presence with us. I thank you again for the beauty and the glory of your salvation that is offered through Jesus alone. I pray that for those who may be wrestling with their faith, I pray that you would encourage it. For those who don't have faith, I pray that you would grant it and you would cause them to turn away from their sin and turn to you in faith. Father, for the rest, I pray that you would remind us again of the wonder and the beauty of Jesus we would see him anew. And in light of his unending love for his children, that we would be spurred on, that we would be motivated, that we would be enamored so with his love that we would long to know him better, to love him more faithfully, and to serve him more diligently. God, give us joy in finding pleasure in you and in you alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's begin and look at verses 30 through 31. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Now, just because John the witness or John the Baptist was a prophet doesn't mean that he knew everything. No prophet does. The reason for this is because prophets are not the source of truth. They only share the truth that God has revealed to them. John in himself did not have the knowledge to say for certain who the Messiah was on his own. 
This makes me think of, of Samuel, one of the greatest prophets in the history of Israel. After Saul's sin, David sends Samuel uh, to go and anoint a new king, one that God has chosen. And we hear this in Samuel, First uh, Samuel 16, 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. And so, after a little discussion, a little hemming and hawing, Samuel goes and he gathers together Jesse and, and all of his sons, save one. And we read in verses 6 and 7, when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And all seven of Jesse's sons passed before Samuel, and none of them were God's anointed until David. Now the point that I want to make is that this great man of God, Samuel, the last judge of Israel and one of the first great prophets in Israel's history, he didn't know. He wasn't able to figure out God's will on his own, God's understanding on his own. He was not the source of truth. He only had the ability to share the truth that God revealed to him. The point I want you to see again was, was that Samuel was not able to point out the, uh, the anointed one of God. The only one who could point out the anointed one of God was God. Just as the only one who could point out the Messiah is God, not John. So we have to hope that John doesn't just give his opinion, but God's revelation. Otherwise, we have no hope or, and we have great cause for fear. For if John kind of looked at everybody and kind of had to think about it really hard and use all of the wisdom that he had to be able to identify the one and only Lamb of God who could take away your sins and mine. If we're trusting solely upon him, then we have issues. But if we're trusting upon God, if God has made it abundantly clear, then we can have confidence in our faith. Now John stresses again in verse 30, something we've seen a couple times, that Jesus is greater than he. And then he moves into the issue of the identity of the Messiah in verse 31. In other words, John points to how he can be so sure that Jesus is this Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In fact, John says that the reason for his ministry of baptism was in part so that he could reveal to Israel who the Messiah was with certainty. Now, I know a lot of people have discussions about John's baptism, and, and, and there's been great papers and, and books written about how John came up with this with this thing to baptize people, to prepare them for the coming of the Messiah. And, and we need to slow that a little bit and remember and recognize that baptizing was God's idea. And God wanted baptism to be a part of John's ministry specifically so that John would have the ability to know for sure who the Messiah is. Now, verse 31 begins with, I myself did not know him. 
And we need to understand what John is saying here. Remember that Mary and Elizabeth, the mothers of Jesus and John the Baptist, knew each other. There is no way that Elizabeth didn't share with her son John about the child that Mary had. Remember what happened when Mary, the mother of Jesus, came to Elizabeth, the mother of John? In Luke 1, 41 and 4 through 44, it says, When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. That's John, by the way, leaping. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. You telling me that she didn't talk to John about that? You telling me that he didn't know anything about it? He didn't know about his miraculous birth, how, how his parents were too old to have children, but God blessed his family? And then are you going to tell me that his own relative, his mom, chose not to share with him the story of her even greater miraculous pregnancy? And that child and what was promised of that child? Now, Elizabeth didn't know everything about what Jesus would be. Even Mary struggled with Jesus' mission and understanding what God had called the Messiah to. But it is very unlikely that John didn't know Jesus. Undoubtedly, Elizabeth told her son the story of Mary's visit many times. It's expected that John would have known about the the miraculous nature of Jesus' birth at the very least. So John is not saying that he didn't know who Jesus was or he didn't know anything about him. What he means is that he didn't know for sure if he was the Messiah. God hadn't revealed it to him yet. Which is a reminder to each of us that Jesus, the Messiah, in fulfillment of the prophecies made about him in the Old Testament, didn't possess the traits that we often expect in our leaders. He he didn't have movie star good looks, no halo, no great charisma, no infectious spirit, no spotless robe trimmed in gold. In many ways, he was like the rest of us. But praise God, for despite this, He determined that we would not have to guess, that John would not have to guess who the Messiah was from the crowd. For God's ministry through John was primarily to identify the Messiah for us all. But how is the question? Look at verse 32. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on earth. Now, John giving this testimony is part of John's whole ministry and job. Remember chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, where it says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. And so this is the testimony. This is what he shared with the world. He says, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove 
and remain on him. Now, before we really pick this apart and try to fully understand it, there's one little issue that I, that I want to mention. Um, there's no reason to assume that the Spirit of God manifested itself as a pigeon or dove. The, the Greek term can mean either, pigeon or dove. It didn't literally land on his shoulder as if Jesus was some type of very early pirate. The word as a can also be translated as like a. The point being one of comparison, not specifics. The Spirit, who is not visible, became visible for a short time and descended similar to a bird's descent and remained on Jesus. In other words, the picture here is to say that, that it wasn't like a, like a bowling ball that was dropped from a plane when the Spirit came down. But that there was a, a slow descent that was, you could say, controlled as the Spirit came down and remained upon Jesus. We're told a bit more of what this looked like in Luke's Gospel, in Luke 3.22, where it says the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Now Luke could be stressing that the invisible spirit became physical for a moment, but I think, as with most, I think that it's far more likely that the spirit descended appearing as a human and indwelt Jesus. In other words, that what John saw was not a dove come and land on Jesus' shoulder, which makes it interesting to figure out what does he mean by remained with him. Does that mean that, the, that as Jesus left, like the dove, it was still there and it stayed there? Again, makes me think of a pirate, but whatever. Most uh, hold that this idea of, of the in bodily form implies that the spirit manifested itself and came and, in a sense, molded in with or sunk into Jesus. And the reason that John knew that it didn't depart was because he didn't see it leave. It came but stayed. It did not pass through him. It did not come for a moment, but it came and stayed. Now, again, we cannot say for certain what this fully looked like. All we know is that it's an illustration. It's one that it was like this, you know, kind of like Revelation. You can't take too many things too literally because they're trying to describe to you something miraculous using common terminology. We don't have the vocabulary to be able to describe heaven properly to each other. We don't have the vocabulary to describe the glory of God. And so often you'll see it was like, and they do their best. But this is John's testimony, that he saw the Spirit of God manifested so that he could see it. And he saw it come down from the heavens, land upon Jesus, and remain with him. This is what John openly proclaimed to all who would listen from that moment on. But how does this help us for certain know that Jesus is the Messiah? I mean, why was the coming of the Spirit upon Jesus so important for his identity 
I mean, couldn't it have been something different? Like, for example, a verbal confirmation from God the Father? It's worth noting that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all include both the dissension of the Spirit onto Jesus and the verbal affirmation of God the Father of who his son was. Listen, for example, to Mark 1, 10 through 11. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Consider this verbal confirmation. This is my son. So why does John here focus on the coming of the Spirit on Jesus as the confirmation that he's the Messiah rather than the voice from the heavens? Look at verse 33. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Here in this verse, we get the answer to both our questions. First, how could John be so certain that Jesus was the Messiah? And second, why was the coming of the Spirit upon Jesus so important to his identification? The reason that John knew for certain that Jesus was the Messiah was because God had told him beforehand that through his baptism ministry, the Lord would clearly identify his Messiah by sending his Spirit upon him. This message from God made it clear to John that his baptism was just to point to the greater and more important baptism, the baptism of the Spirit which only could be something that the Messiah would be able to do. In a sense, it, it kind of pictures back this idea of the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb, when the Israelites were in Egypt, was not meant to save them, but it was a picture to the greater lamb that was to come. John's baptism was not meant to save them, but to picture the greater baptism that would come through the Messiah that would save them. Now, we already looked at this briefly, but again, John says that he did not know him. And some people have issue with this, and they do so explicitly because of Matthew chapter 3. And in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 and on, we read about um, Jesus' baptism. It says this, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. The issue that people have is if John didn't know Jesus was the Messiah, then why did he not want to baptize him? Why was John putting up the, the, this little fight with Jesus about, uh, you should baptize me, I shouldn't baptize you? I agree with Augustine and Luther and Calvin and many others that John believed that Jesus was the Messiah. 
But he wasn't sure. Because the Lord had not yet pointed him out with the sign that God told him would come. So John saw Jesus as greater than himself, but he didn't know for sure if he was greater in the sense of he's a greater prophet than me, or he's a greater uh, proclaimer of truth than me, or he's closer to God than me, or he's greater than me because he's the Messiah. John didn't know because, again, John was not the source of truth. Only God was. And so John was dependent upon God, and so although John... And I believe that John had his assumption that Jesus was the Messiah. He didn't have the confirmation from God yet. As Calvin put it, this sign was not so much for John's sake as for ours. In other words, so that we would not have to depend on John's wisdom that Jesus was the Messiah. Instead, for our benefit, God made it absolutely clear to John so that we could be strengthened in our faith by his testimony. So before John began his public ministry, God did not tell him the identity of the Messiah. He didn't tell him what his name would be. He didn't tell him how tall he would be, how hairy he would be, what family he would be from. He didn't have that conversation with him. Instead, God told him that through baptism and through the the dissension of the Spirit upon him, you will know for certain who he is. This account is how how we and John knew for certain who the Messiah was. Not how Jesus became God. Many false teachers over the years, and unfortunately even still today, have said that up until this moment in time, Jesus was just a human, and then after his baptism, he became fully God. Or God abducted him, or replaced his human soul with a divine one. All kinds of theories. But we have to hold on our own human wisdom. This is not what John has told us about Jesus. Remember chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, it says this about Jesus, the Lamb. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. John has made it abundantly clear that Jesus didn't become God at his baptism. But he's emphasized through these verses that his baptism and the coming of the Spirit was the means by which John would know so that we could know with confidence that Jesus is the Word, that Jesus is the Lamb. Now, before we move on, we need to make sure that we see two important things here. First, I want us to make sure that we see why was the giving and remaining of the Spirit on Jesus so important for us and John to know. In other words, why not emphasize just the voice coming from heaven? Why why was it so important for God to make the sign the coming of the Spirit? And the answer to this question is actually pretty simple. It's it's because of God's promises in the Old Testament about the Messiah and the unity with him in the Spirit. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Isaiah 42. 
In Isaiah 42, we're going to read uh, verses 1 through 9 together. Well, I'm going to read it. You're going to follow along, I hope. But listen not only to the fact that God has promised that this one who is going to come, who will bring peace and justice and offer freedom to those who are held captive in sin, how the beginning of all of that is how he will be given God's spirit. Listen to Isaiah 42, starting in verse 1. Here is my servant who I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. This is what God, the Lord, says, the creator of the heavens who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place, now new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. You see, the giving of the Spirit to Christ was always part of God's plan to identify the Messiah to the world. Consider what Isaiah has said some 900 years before Christ. The Messiah would be a covenant, a new covenant between God and his people. One that would include even the Gentiles. The Messiah will open the eyes of the blind, free captives from prison, bring people from darkness into light. But before all this... He will have the Spirit of God put upon him. The coming of the Spirit on Jesus pointed to the authenticity of Jesus as the Messiah and called people to anticipate all the other plans and ministries of the Messiah, the Savior of the world, whose purpose was not primarily to heal the blind or free the prisoner. This is what many Israelites struggled with as they thought, well, the Messiah is supposed to free us from bondage and so he's going to eliminate Rome from rulers, you know, from our rulers and then, and then life's going to be wonderful and that's how we'll know who the Messiah is. But that's not what Isaiah is writing about. He came to open the spiritual eyes of the blind who could not see him free us from our sins so that we could have life and live it through him. He came to free us from the dungeon that we had dug for ourselves by our own sin. This is why the giving and the remaining of the Spirit on Jesus was so important for John to note because it fulfilled and reminded us of what else this Jesus is going to do. How great and glorious he is. The second thing that I want us to catch from verse 33 before we move on is why was it such a big deal that Jesus would baptize people with the Holy Spirit? 
I mean, it, it, I know I've seen it kind of skimmed over a lot. We're told on the man on whom you see the Spirit come and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Consider for a moment, how would people get the Spirit of God in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant? God would give it to them. And he would give it to them for a period of time and only for a certain purpose. No one else outside of God has the ability or power or authority to distribute the Spirit of God. This point is made clear in John chapter 3. No one controls the Spirit. It's divine. But there's something different about the Messiah. He is not just human. He is also God. And so he will, in full unity with the Spirit, give to other people a new spirit. Not one like they already have, but God's very Spirit. He alone can baptize them with his perfect Spirit so that they may live, so that they may enjoy the presence of God and never again be alone. Listen to Ezekiel's prophecy. In Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27, God declares, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my law. Now, there's so much there that we can't get to. It hurts my head. But just the idea, this reminder that, that it's God's Spirit that motivates us to keep the law. And, and He gives us the Spirit and then calls us to obey. Not we need to obey so that we can get God's Spirit. It's I am going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you a new spirit. And because of my grace and my compassion and my work in your life, you will love me and seek to obey me in joy. Notice the working of God in our salvation. It is God who gives us a new heart. We couldn't do that. God put his spirit in us so that we would be able to follow his ways. John is declaring to all that this Jesus is so much more than he is. Because this Messiah will not just, just give them the hope of a clean conscience, will not just help them to, to dirty their robes in the kind of disgusting Jordan River. This Messiah will give them a new heart. And he will baptize them with the very Spirit of God. Verse 34. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. John was faithful so that we could with confidence believe and receive from God by grace a new heart and a new spirit, not by our own works, but by God's grace alone so that we can learn to love our God and follow after his son. And this Messiah 
this chosen one, this sole and solitary Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's Jesus. And Jesus alone. Friends, let us find comfort in knowing the certainty of who the Messiah is. Let us find comfort in knowing his ministry and his plan. The fullness of of the life that he offers to all who believe. Friends, there is no greater good news. If you're trying to earn a new heart or a new spirit by your own works, you will fail. As all of us have. For no one is righteous. Not even one of us. But if you believe, if you turn from your sins and believe, then you will be saved. Jesus is your salvation. Trust in him and you will have life. And friends who have already believed, let me remind you again of the joy of our salvation. What has God given you? Would it be hard for you to come up this morning and to stand and, and to, to be handed a microphone and to be able to say three or four things, blessings that God has put into your life? Are we so distracted and so focused on the temporary that we miss the abundance of the blessings of God in Christ? I was dead and now I'm alive. I was lost and now I'm found. I was blind and now I can see. I had a heart of stone and now it is a heart of flesh. I have the spirit of the living God in me, with me, forever. Friends, what love is this? What grace is this? What goodness is this? we have so much to be thankful for. In light of his love for us, not so that we can earn it or gain it or have it, but in light of the fact, by grace, through faith, in Jesus alone, we have his love, his life, and we must turn from our sin and find pleasure and joy again in our Savior, in our salvation, in our life with Him. Seek His face. Love His word. Obey with joy. For you have been blessed Paul says in Ephesians 1.3, with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Let the praises of your lips never cease. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your compassion and your goodness and your faithfulness. Thank you for being kind to us. God, thank you for making it abundantly clear to John and to us who the Messiah was so that we would not follow after a false prophet, so that we would not 
waste our lives chasing a lie. God, I thank you for making it so clear. I thank you for being so good. Help us again to see the joy of our salvation. Help us again to remember the fullness of what we have in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.